Thank you very much. It's great to be back with you at Oakville Church. I love coming here. I come roughly once a year. And this is the first time I've been in this building. And it is fantastic. Praise God. I know the last time I came, you were in the middle of the building project. We had the uh, preaching series uh, in the book of Ezra, thinking about rebuilding and building for God's glory. And it's absolutely thrilling to be here to see the, uh, the results of that project. I bring you warm greeting from your brothers and sisters at St. John's in Bromley. Um, I've got program cards from St. John's, just in case you know anyone from uh, Bromley uh, who might uh, be looking for a church, send them to our church. Or if you're moving from here to the Bromley area, come join us. Or if you fancy a really long commute to church, <laughs> come along, come along. Uh, the, uh, yeah, as I said, the uh, folk from St. John's send you uh, their love. They absolutely love it when I go and preach in other churches. Um, we've got something rather exciting happening tomorrow because I've got a new member of staff. If you know anything about uh, the Church of England, you'll know what a curate is. A curate is basically an assistant minister who spends three years plus uh, in a church, basically getting training on the job. Well, I've got a curate starting tomorrow. I've never had a curate before. He's a very, very godly guy called Daniel Whiffen. He used to be at church in uh, Sevenoaks. Uh, St. Nicholas Sevenoaks, he's starting tomorrow, and uh, his family have moved in. We're very, very blessed to have him, um, and I'm really looking forward to what's going ahead. So if you want to know what to pray for St. John's, you can pray for Daniel uh, and uh, for me as we work together. Um, I'm delighted that you're doing 1 Samuel. It's a fantastic book, and uh, I've got the task of reading and uh, uh, expanding a little bit, 1 Samuel chapter 19. So in these church Bibles, it's on page 291. I'm going to read it, then I'm going to comment on it a little bit, and then I'm going to give you some work to do, some uh, discussion. There are sheets on the table. There are probably three or four sheets, three or four copies of it on each table. You want to start on the side that's got a little line drawing of my church in the top right-hand corner. Uh, if you've got the side that begins, Peter and John prayed, that's the back. So turn over to the front. Uh, you see at the top, St. John the Evangelist Bromley. My contact details are there in case you want to uh, uh, send uh, fan mail, I guess, or after today, or, uh, or your questions or comments or critique of my sermon. That's absolutely fine. Um, but there's the uh, outline of where we're going. Um, a, B, and C, three points. Uh, and uh, as I read this through... Uh, Let's see how these points work out in the scriptures. So 1 Samuel 19, beginning at verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, My father Saul's looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I'll go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He's not wronged you, and what he's done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David? by killing him for no reason. Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Once more war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. 
While David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, he is ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed and up the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michael told him, he said to me, let me get away, why should I kill you? When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Nioth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Nioth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, so he sent more men. And they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for armor and went to the great cistern at Secu, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? Over in Nioth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Nioth at Ramah. But the Spirit of God came even upon him. And he walked along, prophesying, until he came to Nioth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all day and night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Wow, what a great story. And I know you're, you're all saying, oh, now we get it. Now we get it. Because every single person that you've spent most of your life wondering, I wonder where that common expression comes from, is Saul, Saul also among the prophets? Haven't you heard that common expression? No, no, no. It, it, evidently it was common in Old Testament times. Uh, I think meaning, wow, this is the most bizarre thing we've ever seen. Uh, is Saul also among the prophets? I mean, the idea that the king of Israel should suddenly start prophesying, should start uh, talking about God uh, under the influence of the Spirit of God was clearly something very, very bizarre. And they uh, came up with this expression, is Saul also among the prophets? In other words, we, we can't really believe King Saul's become a prophet. That's what happened. That's where the expression comes from. Well, um, I have to I'm so thrilled to be here. And I really do love being in your building. You, in the past, when I've come, I've always felt a little bit overdressed. So, uh, so this time I decided that I would uh, do something about that. And just for the benefit of anyone who's listening on the uh, internet recording of this, I'm wearing uh, lurid pink spandex shorts and, uh, and a crop top which exposes my six-pack. The laughter is because I'm not, it's just I'm not wearing a tie this time. Okay, that's dressed down. That's dressed down for me. Um, 1 Samuel 19. Now, it'll help you, I think, if you've got the, uh, the handout. 
Um, I hope there's enough for one between two. I hope you're able to see one. You'll see that I've put a couple of headings there um, to, to talk about this passage, 1 Samuel 19, which is Saul's hatred of David. It's really just the continuing story of Saul's hatred of David, because we've already seen some of that in the previous chapter. If you've got the church Bibles, which is the new international version, um, like all Bible translations have got their weaknesses, one of the things that's quite helpful about the NIV is that the chapter headings at least give you a way to navigate through the events of the story. They're not always very good in sort of interpreting it, but they give you the events. So chapter 18, in my Bible, it's got the heading, Saul's Jealousy of David, and that pretty much sets the scene for chapter 18. And chapter 19, Saul tries to kill David. It's basically just ramping up. Saul's jealousy of David has turned into real hatred, and he makes these attempts to kill him. But here are two points that we notice, and they're A and B on the handout. First of all, opposing God's king hurts me more than him. And then the second one we'll come to in a few minutes. Opposing God's king is a battle I can't win. This is what Saul's experience proved to be the case. So first of all, opposing God's king hurts me more than him. No doubt when Saul started to oppose David in his jealousy, he thought my life will be so much better if only David could be out of the way. And yet what Saul failed to notice or failed to remember or take account of was the fact that actually all David's work that we have recorded for us since he's first mentioned in chapter 16 has been to Saul's own benefit. David's efforts for Saul's benefit. It starts in a very, very low-key way. Uh, Chapter 16, if you've got the Bible, you can just flick back to see what I'm talking about here. Uh, Bottom bottom of page 287, um, uh, 1 Samuel 16, from verse 14 onwards, it says, David in Saul's service, he became the court musician. Uh, He was obviously very gifted at playing the harp or the lyre, uh, and uh, he, he would sit and play music to soothe Saul's spirit. I mean, that's a lovely gift for David to have, and he uses it in Saul's service. That's great. But then it turns out he's also pretty handy with a slingshot, so much so that in chapter 17, he scores this absolutely amazing victory against the champion of the, of the enemy Philistines by killing Goliath. He slings a stone at Goliath's head. Well, you know the story. Everyone knows the story. But isn't it extraordinary? He does that in Saul's service, for Saul's benefit. When Goliath calls out the people of Israel and says, come and send me a champion who can oppose me, the person who's most embarrassed is King Saul because he's in charge. He ought to be supplying somebody. And David says, do you mind if I have a go? And then he wins. And Saul has been totally rescued by this boy, this shepherd boy. The court musician who's turned into the hero of Israel. And Saul doesn't even know his name. The end of chapter 18, uh, Saul says, uh, verse, uh, this is chapter 17, verse 55. He said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? And Abner says, I don't know. And the king says, find out. I mean, it's just embarrassing. Saul's being saved by us. He doesn't even know his name. Plus, he has been working for him as his court musician. Always the way. Sorry, musicians. No one knows who you are. You make this beautiful sound for us to enjoy. And at the end of the day, we don't even know your names. 
Uh, it was always the way. David's efforts for Saul's benefit, they don't end there. They go on. As you read on and on in the story, you'll find it keeps on happening. He keeps on opposing the Philistines, opposing the enemies of Israel. He does the job for which Saul really is responsible. Saul ought to be commanding Israel's army, ought to be winning victories for Israel, and David is doing it. David's efforts are for Saul's benefit. When Saul opposes David, it's hurting him more than it hurts David. But second, in the midst of all of this, there's a tremendous respect that David has for Saul's authority. Most, in, most impressive of all, you're going to come to this story in a, a, a week or two's time. Actually, there might be a few more, time, a few more weeks than that. I don't know how, how slowly you're doing, working through this book. But if you turn over to chapter 24, um, sorry, spoiler alert for anyone who's not read the book of 1 Samuel before. But there's a, a heading that says, David spares Saul's life. Basically, God hands over Saul to David in a, a way that I mean, David could completely blamelessly kill Saul and he refuses it he refuses the opportunity and then amazingly I've turned over the page to chapter 26 David again spares Saul's life Saul has been trying over and over again to kill David and twice David is given the opportunity to get his own back and he says I'm not going to do that Because David has a tremendous respect for Saul's authority. He says, far be it from me to raise my hand against the anointed of God. David says, look, Saul has the authority of God's king. I'm not going to oppose him. This is the kind of man David is. And therefore, Saul should be saying to himself, look, opposing him hurts me more than it hurts him. But finally, we see David's concern for Saul's honor. And this is right at the end of the book when, uh, sorry, double spoiler alert, Saul does actually get killed in the end. He gets killed by the Philistines, the Battle of Galbar. And David mourns for him in 2 Samuel chapter 1 as somebody who had an enormous concern for Saul and his honor. A man comes along claiming to have killed Saul, thinking that David will reward him. He says, you know, David, I know Saul's been such a, uh, such a bane of your life for the last few years. Well, I've actually killed him. And David has the man killed on the spot. He says, how dare you do that? Once again, David shows he's got Saul's interests. So Saul should realize this, opposing God's king, because that is ultimately who David is. Opposing God's king hurts me more than it hurts him. But not only that. Opposing God's king, this is point B, opposing God's king is a battle I can't win. And that must have become clearer and clearer to Saul as the story went on. Now we already know, which Saul doesn't, that David has been selected by God. That's happened in chapter 16. Verse 1 of chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Okay, David has been chosen by God. Now, that means that there's no way Saul can ever beat him. But uh, Saul doesn't know that David's been anointed. It was done in secret. And yet, Surely the picture should be coming because David is being successful against all odds. Who would have thought that a shepherd boy without the benefit of any armor would defeat the champion Goliath, who was a giant, who was an expert at fighting? It's the biggest, I mean, it's proverbial, isn't it? It's a David and Goliath story. 
he does that, and then he goes on. Uh, chapter 18, uh, Saul sends David out to kill a hundred Philistines, knowing that David's somewhere along the line going to be killed by one of them. And David comes back having beaten 200 of them. His success is against all odds. It's going to go on and on and on. We're told in chapter 18, verse 5, whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. But as well as his success against all odds, there is the fact that David seems to have this amazing ability to escape danger. I mean, it's there for us in the story of uh, chapter 19. So we've seen in chapter 19, verse 1, the first verse that I read this evening, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But it didn't work. None of them killed David. And eventually in verse 6, Paul relented. Saul relented. Saul says, um, oh, okay, we'll give up. I'm not going to oppose David anymore. But then, not that long afterwards, he changed his mind again. Verse 9, evil spirit came to Saul as he was sitting in the house. So he tries to pin David to the wall with his spear, but failed. The spear stuck in the wall. You can sort of hear it kind of go, like uh, one of those shatterproof rulers on the desk. Did you used to do that when you were at school? Maybe it was just me. Um, uh, he evades the spear. You did it. Thank you. Thank you. It's lovely. A little bit of audience feedback. Wonderful. Good. Anyone else alive? Yeah, a few of you alive. Um, so, okay, so there's another attempt on his life. Again, he escapes. Verse 11, Saul sent more men to kill David, but this time uh, David's wife, who is Saul's own daughter, let's remember, helps David to escape. And uh, Saul sends the men again, verse 20, again, uh, uh, David escapes. And this time it happens in this really comic way that Saul sends one wave after another of men to kill David and they get struck down by the Spirit of God coming upon them. And so instead of killing David, you can imagine them with their spears raised about to kill him and suddenly they think, oh, better put the spear down. Oh, where's my tambourine? Because they start praising God and prophesying. And Saul says, I've had enough of this. If if the job's got to be done properly, I better do it myself. So Saul goes along and he also raises his spear and is about to kill David. And then he also has to put it down and grab a tambourine as well. Because the Spirit of God comes on him as well. Has he not learnt David's ability to escape danger time and time again? Must teach Saul one thing, opposing God's king is a battle I can't win. He better just give up. But he doesn't. You'll find it. You've got more weeks on this, but you'll find that. Saul tries again and again and again. He never really gets it. Now, what's going on? What's going on? We see the the relentless pursuit by Saul of God's king. He's trying over and over again to oppose God's king, despite the fact that it goes against all self-interest, because opposing God's king hurts me more than it hurts him, and despite the fact that it's a battle he can't win. And you might think, gosh, there's never been anyone like Saul since then. Who else would make such a mistake? Well, actually, it's not that uncommon. So if you have a look at my handout, you'll see point C says, from David to the son of David. Jesus is called the son of David. 
in the very first verse of the New Testament, and all through his ministry, people called out to him. They addressed him as son of David. That is to say, you're not only the descendant of David in terms of lineage, but also you're the successor to David. You are God's anointed king. Anointed is the word that in Hebrew is Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. You are the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed. You are the king. And who would dare to oppose Jesus, the Lord's king? You see, Saul should have learned his lesson. Opposing God's king hurts me more than it hurts him. And yet, people didn't learn that lesson. So King Herod, famously, in, uh, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 2, story that we read at Christmas time usually, Herod, it's the story of the two kings. You can have a bit of fun if you, announce, if you did a family service or something where you've got some little kids in there and say, well, today we're reading the story of the two kings. And someone will say, no, 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 Andrew, you mean the story of the three kings. No, there are only two kings in the story. There are wise men who are not numbered, but there are two kings. There's King Herod and King Jesus. And the story is the drama of who's going to win because there's no room for two kings. It's going to be either Herod or Jesus. And King Herod was desperate to win. He said, I do not want to be supplanted. I don't want to have to uh, move aside in order to let some new person rule over this country. I'm in charge, and that's the way it's going to be. He's done just the same error that Saul did back in 1 Samuel. Because actually, Herod discovers that opposing God's king hurts me more than it hurts him. Jesus came to bring blessing. And if Herod had played along with that, had got in line with that, he would have enjoyed the blessings that Jesus came to bring. Instead, he died in torment, having opposed God's king. But also opposing God's king, that was a battle Herod couldn't win. He thought that he was working out a really clever strategy. He said, I'll get the wise men. I'll pretend that I want to go and worship this baby king as well. I'll get them to tell me where he is, and then we can go, and we can kill him. Brilliant. And God says to the wise men, just take the A road back instead. And they bypass the palace, and Herod never finds him. He takes all sorts of bloodthirsty um, uh, means to try and get Jesus, but he never succeeds. Because opposing God's king is a battle I can't win. If you turn over to the back, you'll see that the early disciples recognized what was going on. Because what they do in a prayer in Acts chapter 4, this is my, my last little bit before I hand over for discussion. In a prayer in Acts chapter 4, they tie together... The opposition received by King David and the opposition received by the son of David at the hands of Herod and in due course the other rulers. Because what the, uh, uh, the disciples do in this passage is they quote from a psalm, a psalm written by King David, Psalm 2. Go in and have a look at it. In Psalm 2, David reflects on the fact that people keep opposing God's anointed king. And he says, you know, it's bizarre that they do that because it's to their own destruction and they'll never win it. And Peter and John pray, quoting this, this is what they say. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And here's the quote from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth, like Saul, like Herod, Rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one, Christ, Messiah, King. 
Indeed, hear the Apostles' comment on Psalm 2. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Messiah, King, Christ, descendant of David. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That's it. In other words, the sufferings that David experienced at Saul's hand were just like what happened to Jesus. The difference being, of course, that David eluded Saul time and time again. God protected David in order to safeguard his messiahship, his kingship over Israel. But in the case of Jesus, God's plan was that they should ultimately overthrow the messiah. They should put him on a cross and think that they had won. But we know that's not how the story ends. See, opposing God's king hurts me more than it hurts him. He was killed that day, but he didn't stay dead. And through his death, he brought blessing of life to all who trust in him. And opposing God's king is a battle I can't win. They put him on the cross, but within three days, he was back. And he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. So there's the story of 1 Samuel 19, and I've suggested on the sheet, under the heading for discussions, some ways that you might like to explore this. I'm trying to think it would be good in our discussions if we try and relate this to our own lives. It may be that there are questions here that really go straight to the heart of our own lives, or that we might want to discuss them in a slightly more general way. I'll just read the questions for you, and then you can have some time to discuss. Here are some areas of our lives over which King Jesus may wish to assert his rightful authority. I say may wish to... He he does, doesn't he? I mean, he's king. Here are some areas of your life that Jesus wants to rule over. How we use our money and our time. Our ambitions for work, business, career. How we relate to our neighbors, friends, colleagues. Our ambitions for relationship, marriage, family. The life of our church. And you can add others to that if you want to. Choose one or two of these areas and consider. First, what concerns do we have about giving Jesus more control over these areas? Or if you prefer, what is the worst that could happen? See, Saul did not want to let... David rule over any area of his kingdom, and Herod was the same. And if we're not careful, you and I will be the same. We'll say to Jesus, look, here is my little kingdom. It might just be my own life, or it might just be a few aspects of my life. I don't really want you to rule over it. Well, what's the worst that could happen if we did let him do that? And then B, how might we ultimately benefit and be blessed by allowing Jesus to rule over these areas more than he does at present. Does that give you something to go on? Look, as with all discussion questions, the point is for you to think about the passage and apply it to your lives. If these questions don't work for you, then cross them out, write your own, discuss those. And then you can let me have them afterwards. And next time I preach on this passage, I'll use it. All right. Now, uh, Dan, how long do we want to give people for discussion? Just under 10 minutes. That's not good enough. (laughs) I'm just the messenger. Okay, just under 10 minutes.